Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Let's have a conversation with Jared Bernstein, U.S. Council of Economic Advisers member. Jared, we appreciate your ongoing transparency off the back of a huge effort to deliver a $1.9 trillion plan. Let's start with this, how unique this moment is and why a unique approach is required. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, The uh, American Rescue Plan, which we expect to pass uh, the Congress any moment now, is certainly one of the most consequential and one of the most progressive uh, pieces of legislation in, in, in recent or even distant American history. We're talking about getting $1,400 in checks out to almost 160 million American families. And those checks start going out the, uh, the door days after signage. Uh, in, in fact, speaking of uh, deadlines, uh, in, in just a few days, uh, about 11 million Americans uh, risk the potential of losing enhanced unemployment benefits if we don't extend them, which is, of course, at the heart of the American Rescue Plan. And then there's, of course, the crucial issue of finally gaining control of this virus, producing, distributing the vaccine, getting shots in arms so we can get to the other side of this crisis and launch a robust, reliable and inclusive recovery. The shock is different, yet we have been conditioned by the previous cycle and the lessons learned from the previous cycle are being applied to this one. Now, Jared, that's something I'm struggling with. We've been conditioned by the previous cycle that we need to do more because the recovery was so so shallow. If the shock is different, why are the lessons that we've learned previously pertinent to this one? I think the critical lesson there is the one you've said, and I don't think that, uh, if anything, the magnitude of the shock would would really emphasize that lesson, which is that our tendency has been to do too little, not to do too much. You know, when I came up in this business, there was no such thing as a jobless recovery. You had these more V-shaped dynamics, and you know, a bunch of folks were furloughed from the factory, the shock uh, went into the rearview mirror, and a bunch of folks came back. Now we've had these sluggish, jobless recoveries that often set up uh, an expansion that underperforms. Uh, that's not the way Joe Biden wants to see his administration get out of the gate. And with the American Rescue Plan behind us, we think, again, especially with getting the finally getting this virus behind us is so critical to launching not a wait and see, not an on again, off again kind of recovery, but a reliable recovery right. that can be durable. Dr. Bernstein, good morning. Thrilled to have you uh, with us uh, today. You did a frontline interview in the heat of the financial crisis talking about you guys inheriting a recession. Your critics will say you are manufacturing a boom economy with this stimulus, and they will then go on to say you are manufacturing new, higher inflation. Defend the administration. Sure. Well, first of all, uh, I don't hear too many of those voices outside of you know partisan Republicans. Um, I, e- even even some economists who've been worrying about overheating and critical of the magnitude of the package have recognized the support and recognized and support the importance of of rescue and relief. But let's talk about your inflation qu- question. I want to tell you about the three S's. Okay, you ready for the three S's? Spending, slack, and savings. So. Spending, by which I mean spend out, uh, the spend out of the American Rescue Plan does not occur in one month or two months. It is true, and it's very important, that the checks and the unemployment insurance, the enhanced benefits, get out very quickly, right out the door. 
but the plant itself spends out over a couple of years. So uh, some of the uh, folks on kind of the overheating team uh, don't recognize the, uh, the spend out pattern. Then there's slack, okay? There is still way more slack in this labor market, Tom, than I think your question implied. We have an unemployment rate for African-Americans of 9.9%, 8.5% for Hispanics, 9.5 million jobs in the hole still. That's deeper than the deepest part of the Great Recession. And then, of course, savings, the, the, the other S. Uh, some of these benefits, some of these uh, uh, parts of the American Rescue Plan will be at least initially saved by people who will then use it to meet well, accumulated debt, say from rents and mortgage forbearance. Okay. And that, too, puts downward pressure on price pressures. But, Jared, uh, we've had a number of economists come on and say that that was actually perhaps a bit overstated, that actually consumers are not as indebted as they have been in the past. So there isn't as much debt to pay down. That is one argument. But there's another argument saying, yes, the depth of this crisis was deeper in some ways than the last crisis, but it was very different and the bounce back has been much faster than economists are predicting. What makes you confident that that isn't a sign that we're going to get some sort of growth that was going to be turbocharged and the inflation also with it that will be a very different picture than what we've seen in the past 10 years? Yeah, well, first of all, let me uh, talk about the debt issue. And for that, you know, you might want to consult with our good friend, uh, Mark Zandi, who's been tracking a very specific type of debt, which is the type I've had in mind. And that's for people who've uh, been benefiting from rent moratoriums and mortgage forbearance. Uh, this type of debt is, uh, I think, uh, quite escalated right now, and it's precisely the type of debt, and there's some evidence for this, that folks are using these benefits to spend down. You know, eviction risk is still upon the land, and, and, and the American Rescue Plan addresses that head on. Now, you talked about the pace of the recovery. Every forecast I've seen has a couple of things common to it. One is that uh, we will grow above trend this year and next year, and that is precisely the kind of growth rates that the American Rescue Plan is supposed to set off, again, in a reliable sense, because we finally put the virus behind us, we've safely opened schools, we've gotten families and businesses the relief they need. Yep. But these forecasts also show heat, yes, heat in terms of interest and inflation rates, but not overheat, and I think that's the key. Jared, before we let you go in about 30 seconds, if you can, Something you've been fighting for for a long, long time will not be in this bill that goes through the House today. It's a higher minimum wage. What's the administration's message to progressive members of the House who didn't get what they want either? Uh, President Biden was disappointed by uh, the ruling of the Senate parliamentarian to keep this out of the bill. However, that doesn't mean he's uh, at all putting this fight behind him. And, and in fact, uh, he continues to be uh, extremely committed. Uh, I got an email this morning to that effect, and I won't uh, divulge what it said, but I will say that the administration Feel remains. Free. That the administration, <laughs> our administration remains uh, absolutely committed to finding a path forward on a $15 uh, minimum wage, and that's going to be work that you'll hear a lot more about going forward. Jared, hopefully we'll hear from you soon. This is truly a big, big effort down in Washington, D.C., and it deserves transparency, and I'm pleased we're getting it from you today. Jared Bernstein there, the U.S. Council of Economic Advisors member. Let's bring in Bruce Kasman, Tom, J.P. Morgan, Chief Economist yep. and Head of Global Economic Research. Bruce, great to catch up with you, sir. Typically, we'd start with the analysis, then we'd get to the forecast. Can we just start with the call? What is the call from you and the team for this year? So we've got the U.S. economy growing at a 6.5% pace um, with the middle part of the year, huge, almost 9% growth for the next two quarters. I, I would just want to emphasize the global dimension of what's happening here. The U.S. is lifting largely off fiscal stimulus, but we don't want to ignore 
the lifting you get in Western Europe coming as the virus starts to fade, as the vaccines come on. That's as big a lift in our forecast. So we have both the U.S. and Western Europe booming over the next couple of quarters. And our mobility indices are suggesting that that lift in Europe started in February. That's right where I want to go, Dr. Kasman, and I'll go to Columbia University. Let's dovetail your world-leading market economics with the academics of Xavier Sala E. Martin. If I look at growth economics right now, how does the stimulus actually work in the emerging markets of Professor Sala E. Martin or in the J.P. Morgan world? How does it actually diffuse worldwide? Well, that's an interesting question, and I think what we're going to see is just the dominant effect of, of spending in the U.S. and Western Europe, which is going to be sucking in imports from the rest of the world. Um, that is going to lift everybody, but there are offsets in terms of higher interest rates, in terms of uh, central banks in emerging markets, not the Fed, of course, uh, beginning to move towards tighter policy. The net effect of this is a very clear positive. The other reaction, which I think is important, is China. They've had a very successful recovery. They're going to sit on the demand they get from the rest of the world and tighten policy here. So Chinese demand is going to slow uh, being somewhat of an offset against an otherwise booming global uh, growth picture. Bruce, how much is just a recovery from some of the lost productivity, the lost growth that we saw in 2020? And how much are we entering a new cycle of potential inflation? Well, the way we've been thinking about this is to recognize that there is a huge bounce that's coming uh, as we normalize, as we get bottleneck pressures, uh, as we're seeing commodity prices. So the inflation pickup here looks to us like it's going to bring U.S. and global inflation possibly to the highest pace we've seen in a decade. I want to fade that. I think there's a lot of temporary forces that are going to start to uh, dissipate as we get later in the year. However, I think behind the scenes what we're seeing is committed policies. We're seeing with this stimulus a very healthy balance sheet on the part of the household sector. Uh, we're seeing the interaction of Fed policy and fiscal policy. So I want to buy the reflationary trend and I want to fade the bounce that we're going to see in the next few months, which is going to way overstate uh, the degree to which this is changing. Bruce, do you think that will be the dominant market narrative? later this year when we get that better data and I keep going back to this story because it's so important the data will get better we can all agree on that whether you're bearish or bullish what the bears believe is that the inflation starts to run away and that the market starts to tighten up and then bring forward Fed hikes as well do you think everyone else gets your view of the world or enough people gets that view I think there's no doubt as we go through the next number of months and we see inflation spike higher as we see these huge growth numbers the debate is going to be, are we going to overshoot on inflation? Is the Fed going to have to move earlier? I think the Fed is going to be an anchor here, basically telling us that at least until uh, the end of 22, they're on hold here. They're not going to uh, change their, their thinking anytime soon. And I think if we're right, what we're going to see is the inflation numbers settle down. But I think in an underlying sense, show signs that it's moving, <clears throat> moving higher here. Uh, so I think the bottom line here is that we're going to definitely buy this as a very different event than what we saw after the global financial crisis. But we got to get through this scare. And I don't doubt that there's going to be a lot of talk about whether inflation is getting out of control here. Bruce, I mentioned the x-axis, the timeline. Uh, moments ago, Michael Feroli has been a great leader on potential GDP. What's the Kasman timeline to get back to 2% potential GDP? Are we grossly off? Is it much farther out than we think? I think that's a really hard one, Tom. And we're kind of struggling with trying to figure out the lasting implications of what's, what's happening here. 
Um, there are clearly some negatives here in terms of having uh, created dislocation, scarring in the labor market uh, that are going to continue here for some time. Um, but at the same time, we're getting a boost to growth that's not only lifting growth back to its previous level, it's actually raising it above the path we were on. And there's some real possibilities here that that dynamic, if it's sustained, uh, creates positive factors. Our potential growth estimates for the U.S. are one and a half. We haven't changed that yet. But I have to say I'm somewhat agnostic about what the next couple of years are going to deliver on that front. Bruce, always good to see you and great to catch up. Bruce Katzman there, J.P. Morgan Chief Economist and Head of Global Economic Research. This is a joy, and on March 10th, we get out front of what is possibly my book of the summer. I'm not willing to say that yet, but boy, does James Trevitas go to the top of the pile. Admiral Trevitas provides value as Bloomberg Opinion columnist. The former NATO Supreme Commander were thrilled that he could join us with Ackerman and Trevitas 2034. It's a 303-page novel that begs to be read now. Admiral Trevitas, thank you so much for joining us. The banner that begins your book is chilling. It is a March day in 2034, and our United States Navy is in the South China Sea looking and staring at China. Is there a risk here that we need to wait for war with China before 2034? Low risk over the next few years, but the reason we set the book about 15 years in the future, Tom, is because that's when the trend lines really start to look uh, difficult, shall we say. Chinese cyber capability goes up, their maritime capability goes up, their ability to employ stealth, their determination to hold on to the South China Sea where the novel opens. It could be a collision, it could be a miscalculation. We ought to worry about it. And 2034 is a cautionary tale. On page 126, I think this is so important, John, the couple sliding in a couple of beers at the old Ebbett Grill or the Hay Adams Bar, and then they came back later. I mean, forget about that, John. This is outrageous where Stavitas, John Farrell, is going to the fiction of someone having cocktails at the Hay Adam Hotel. And now I know John, why you impossible. like the Admiral so much, Tom, because this is the same approach exactly. that you have in foreign relations as well. <laughs> Admiral. Hey, we were going to set that scene at the Willard Hotel, which also has a great round-robin bar. So There we go. I know my DC bars, not to work. I'm sure you've shared a drink with Tom at several of those bars as well. <laughs> Admiral, looking forward and how this relationship evolves, there has been talk, and I believe it came from the South China Morning Post in just yesterday, in the last 24 hours, that there could be a meeting with the top envoys between the United States and China, potentially in Alaska. How do you think this relationship resets? What's the approach and how is it different to what we saw with the previous administration? I think you'll see the Biden team work from a script, if you will. They'll create a strategy that'll put together military deterrence, diplomacy, economic tools, cultural tools, strategic communication, and above all, work with our allies. That's the formula here. The Trump administration was very episodic, very tactical. I think you're gonna see a more strategic approach. That's what we need. This is the big strategic challenge of this part of the century. What's the objective? What do you think the objective should be? I think a strategy ought to seek to confront where we must. I mean, we can't turn over the entire South China Sea to China as territorial waters, which they claim we've got to confront them there. But we ought to cooperate wherever we can. We ought to find zones of cooperation. Example, 
the environment, example, prepare for the next pandemic, example, work together on medical diplomacy in the developing world. So confront where we must, cooperate where we can, Let's avoid the 2034 scenario at all costs. Admiral, you're giving me permission to go with gloomy what ifs, which is basically what I like to do with my pastime. And I'm wondering, as you look toward uh, what some of the risks are, I'm curious, what does a world war look like in a post-nuclear era? Um, It's going to include cyber as a significant component, particularly by the end of this decade, as quantum computing collides with what we think of traditionally as cyber bits, ones and zeros. Computing, much more complicated, opens many more capabilities. Stealth will be even better than it is now. Space will be an important component. That's why the United States created a space force. And finally, you're going to see good old-fashioned naval conflict here because Uh, For better or for worse, we're not going to get into a land war with China. It's going to be played out in the scenarios of the South China more than anywhere else. Do you think that the United States has both the intellectual capacity in the government jobs that need to be filled in order to prepare ourselves for some of the cyber attacks, as well as the investment on the private side towards some of these resources? You put your finger on the key element here, which is private-public cooperation. The government can't do this by itself. A good first step would be to create a cyber force, just like our space force was created a year or so ago. But secondly, there has to be pretty seamless cooperation across this enormous threat surface that we're facing. So uh, we've got work to do in that regard, and we're going to have to compete hard with Silicon Valley to bring that talent to bear on this problem in cyber. James, the shocking immediacy of this book, 2034, is from your heritage of coming out of San Diego on a boat when you were a kid. And of course, also Elliot Ackerman's wonderful work. The realism of this is tangible. Is our U.S. Navy ready to do what's in 2034? Yes, and they are already at sea. The challenge is going to be numbers of ships. And even now, this may surprise you, Tom, but China has more warships than the United States does. Ours are more capable. We have those big, beautiful nuclear aircraft carriers. China is gaining airspeed in this regard. I don't mean to interrupt, Admiral, but this is so important. We've lost Hong Kong. We can't show the flag there anymore, I believe. Where is our harbor as we base affairs out of the South China Sea? We're going to be forward, Tom, from Guam. and that Guam? That's going to be the forward base. Remember, it used to be Pearl Harbor. Now you're all the way forward to Guam. And a second important piece of this is uh, up in Tokyo Bay, ironically enough, where the World War II ended. That's our largest naval uh, base in the Pacific is in a place called Yokosuka, Japan, in Tokyo Bay. That's where the 7th Fleet is based. They will go forward. They'll also operate out of bases in South Korea. It's good to have allies in this one. Admiral, I want to finish up by where you think this is going. You've talked about the objective, and I think it's really important to understand where things are heading and whether we can just slow them down or whether we can change the outcome. Do you think the outcome is already predetermined now? I do not, although we ought to be concerned if we look back in history. So often when there is an established power, Athens confronted by a rising power, Sparta, or an established power, the United Kingdom, 100 years ago, challenged by a rising Kaiser's Germany. So often those scenarios do lead to war. 
We can still avoid this. That's why we wrote 2034 to lay out a cautionary tale. We need a strategy to do that that employs all elements of U.S. national power. And we need to understand China better. Today, China knows us better than we know China. We have work to do. Admiral, before we let you go, why a novel? And why now? I believe this is your first novel ever. Tom just oh, may have thrown on. it, tried to throw it out Lisa, at, John, at John. You did try to throw it. I just want to confirm that. Did Leonardo, you not just throw that book? George Clooney's going to play Stravitas. <laughs> Leonardo DiCaprio's going to play Lieutenant Farrow. Come on, it's a no-brainer. All right, so why fiction? Because in fiction, we can allow ourselves to imagine the future. If I'd written a dry-as-dust policy kind of book, <laughs> right. Well, interest items, but this reaches the big audience, yeah. and I want to let people know this is a real danger. James Tavides, how is our new defense secretary doing? I forgot his name. <laughs> secretary Lloyd Austin, one of my contemporaries, a wonderful officer. He's off to a terrific start by being steady, by being very concerned about the people in the force. He's a real expert on the Middle East. He's going to be spending a lot of time uh, focusing on the Pacific. I'm not sure if the president's listening or not. That was sophisticated humor, Tom. I'll give you that. Admiral James Tavridis. The president doesn't listen, but the two dogs are in front Admiral, of the screen thank every you. morning. And good luck with the book release, sir. And we look forward to catching up with you soon. Admiral Thanks. James Tavridis there of Bloomberg Opinion, columnist and former NATO Supreme yeah. Allied Commander. And it is now a joy, an annual visit for us with Craig Moffat and Michael Nathanson of Moffat Nathanson, the founding partners, legendary at Sanford Bernstein. If you got your hands on their black book years ago, you read it cover to cover. And this, folks, more than ever, we've spoken with Moffat and with Nathanson, the importance of our homes our TVs, our kids, and what the future is for media. This is must-listen for Global Wall Street. I don't even know who to begin with. I think Craig Moffat's better looking. Michael, I'm going with Craig. <laughs> wow. Craig oh, Craig. my gosh. Start off with a bang, Tom. No, no. I'm Michael, gonna... you're never going to hear that. You'll never live that down. Guys, <laughs> thrilled to have you life. with us. Craig, I was thunderstruck in your neck of the woods, wire and all that, at the cord cutting that's going on. When the pandemic's over, do we continue to cut the cord? Sure, of course we do. And first of all, thank you for having us on. It's always a pleasure for us to do this as well. So, so thank you. And thanks for the kind words. And look, of course, we're going to continue to cord cut. And I think what Michael and I have been writing a lot about over the last year is that this has now become almost a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, we talk about two vicious cycles that have started in cord cutting, where First, it was about sports, where the sports contracts are, are fixed for the programmers. Their prices, therefore, keep going up. They have no choice but to push those price increases through to uh, the, the distributors, cable and satellite operators, who therefore raise their prices and make it less and less attractive for anybody who's not a sports fan. Those customers leave. That drives the price even higher for the customers who are left. And you get this kind of this self-fulfilling doom loop of more and more customers leaving. Mm -hmm. Now you're augmenting that with the, the media companies themselves getting rewarded for taking their best content and moving it over to their direct-to-consumer platforms, SVOD and AVOD. And so that, too, is starting mm -hmm. to accelerate. And you're strip mining the traditional ecosystem. So. There's, I think we're past the point of no return for this transition. Uh, right. And 
cutting now just moves all the way to SVOD and AVOD for non-sports. Michael Nathanson, since our last joint visit with the two of you, what I have been thunderstruck by is, you know, I'll make it narrow, the courage of Mr. Iger at Disney, the courage of people to be bold. Do we see more Iger-like courage in the coming quarters? Oh, without a doubt, Tom. They've been rewarded for that vision and that courage. And everyone is now going to emulate Disney because Wall Street has rewarded Disney for the execution of that vision. And people want the same narrative for their stocks, right? So in the past couple of months, Discovery, Viacom have all joined you know, this bandwagon, Peacock and Comcast. And as Craig said, because court claims is going to accelerate, all the media companies are going to, in their own words, you know, worlds accelerate growth as well uh, and follow Disney down the same path. Craig, you said something that was really important, non-sports. This was this key phrase because right now cable is holding on to sports and there is a question of how much of a lock grip cable has on sports, especially as Amazon, uh, I think, inks a Thursday night exclusive deal with the NFL. What's your vision going out one, two, three years in this relationship, Craig? Uh, you know what, I'm gonna defer to Michael. He's really the expert on sports um, and I think Michael's done a lot of really interesting work. So Michael, I'll, I'll let you answer that one. Okay. Thanks, Craig, and thanks, Lisa. Um, so our view is that only the biggest events, the NFL, um, X Thursday night, Major League Baseball playoffs, NCAA playoffs, the biggest events will stay in the ecosystem. But you're starting to see, as you said, Lisa, the chipping away of the course, you know, core sports. So Amazon's taking a package. You'll probably see the NHL do some deals over the top with other with other companies. So the bundle is going to still have core sports in it, but now sports fans will have to maybe pick other streaming platforms to get, you know, secondary sports. So it's going to basically, I think, lead to more and more inflation for consumers when it comes to the cost of, of, of a video, basically. Well, that raises a question, Craig, just in terms of at what point people are going to cut the cord. I mean, have you done any research in sort of the price point at which people decide, forget it, it's just not worth it? Well, yeah, I, I don't. Sorry, Craig. sorry. I was just going to say, Lisa. I don't think you can say it's it's just price anymore, because as Michael was describing the the vision of Disney, um, as as the companies are rewarded for putting their best content on their direct to consumer platforms, it's more than just price. It's it, it's about the product itself. And you know, we've done some work on the video value chain that says you have to really think about. Um, what what is coming being the aggregation of individual shows rather than the aggregation of cable networks and cable networks themselves sort of disappear and in in that world um, it, it is really mm -hmm. hard to say there's a floor for for cord cutting if you define cord cutting as who's buying the traditional bundle of cable networks there has to be a bundle of cable networks to buy right. for that to have a floor right. well so, so can I say, sorry, go ahead Tom. Michael please Michael jump in. Okay, so our core thesis had always been there's about 50% of the U.S. population that's a sports and news fan. As long as sports and news stay in the bundle, the bundle will survive to 50%. But now you're starting to see that fragmentation of people putting their sports on their own services and in the bundle. And that's going to lead right. to real, you know, the acceleration of cord cutting. I, I want to get to the lessons learned here, and I can go to Warner Brothers and all that mess with HBO, but I want to start to the two of you. And Craig, let me start with you. Maybe that's wrong, but I'm going to go there because Nathanson's better looking than you, Craig. And, 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 and <laughs> what, what, what I want to say, Craig, is AT&T, what a train wreck. 
You published it was a train wreck. We all knew it was going to be a train wreck. What were the lessons learned from AT&T's effort to go into the Moffat Nathanson world? Well, the the lesson is when you overpay for for declining assets, bad stuff happens, right? I mean, I, I don't know that it has anything. It tells you anything all that specific about media as much as it does. In, in, you know, it, it wasn't it wasn't a mystery when they bought Directv that they were overpaying for an asset that was poised to decline. Um, we wrote it at the time, and lots yep. of other people knew it at the time. They doubled down uh, in part because they got into so much trouble on the DirecTV deal that that they their dividend once again looked questionable, and they had to then spend even more to buy Time Warner. And in retrospect, the, remember what Time Warner was. It had some wonderful right. assets like HBO, but it was still mostly a, a collection of cable networks. That too now looks like it is a declining business that they paid okay. too much for. So. So now the problem they've got right now is the balance sheet, and, and they have had that balance sheet problem for a while, and I don't see how they grow out of it. But, but Michael, to me, the major lesson here is the creative side. Disney you know, hit a home run with Mandalorian and John yeah. Favreau. I get all that. Do you see any evidence financial types can do creative? I don't observe it. No. Tom, that, see, I was going to say and jump on Craig's answer. The other lesson is, you can't have AT&T management leading creative companies, right? And I think there is a certain degree of hubris that they had that they could run all these businesses and you can't, right? Creative businesses and the way that Disney approaches their business is unique, right? And that is why Disney has been able to scale so quickly. And I think, you know, I think slowly but surely we on the street have realized that not every management team is the same and you see it in the outcome. I think you've hit something, Tom, that's hard to to measure and hard to distinguish, but you know when you see it, right? And that I think is the other lesson of AT&T Time Warner at the end of the day. Yeah, it's a great point because remember, this is not the first time they've done that. If, if the old timers like me, the, the, the telcos tried to get into the media business back in the late 1990s and it failed miserably for all the reasons that Michael was just saying, right? Yeah. These companies do not do well in managing creative businesses. Yeah. Guys, we're out of time. Let's do this again. Yeah. Okay, let's do this again. This is like affecting every single listener, every single viewer. We do Moffat Nathanson uh, with us. They're wonderful research. I do want to point out, don't ask Lisa or me for their research. We protect the copyright of all of our uh, guests. If you have any interest in international markets, this is without question our interview of the day, the interview of the moment. We had Bruce Kasman on earlier of J.P. Morgan, his leadership in economics, and, we, and he needs to understand the minutia of EM. He turns to Gabriela Santos of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. As an aside, she speaks 14 languages. Gabriela, wonderful uh, to have you on uh, today. The Chinese stock market is down 14%. It is truly plunged. Why? Thank you, Tom. And English is one of those languages, so we're good. Um, in terms of the Chinese stock market, we have seen uh, a correction from those February highs. Um, I think it has very much to do with a similar story to what's happening in the NASDAQ in the US. Chinese markets are extremely growthy. They're very geared towards technology, uh, innovation, and they did extremely well last year right. during the pandemic. Top performing market, 
uh, 30%. So came into this year with elevated valuations. So I think all you're seeing in Chinese markets is just a correction uh, okay. from a very, very good uh, year last what year. What everybody wants to know, Gabriella, is your reset on emerging markets. You talk about a tug of war. There's many tug of wars in many different parts of EM. Can you stay in EM? Can you add new cash to EM or, you do, or do you dash to America? No, emerging markets is for us both uh, cyclically and structurally uh, an overweight in portfolios. Um, but I think it's, it's important to understand how emerging markets have changed. Uh, so it's a different emerging markets at the beginning of this cycle than it was at the beginning of the last cycle. It is an index that is a lot more growthy. Uh, it has a similar percentage of tech to the U.S., about a, a quarter of the index. It has 65% exposure to growthy regions like China, Korea, and Taiwan. Uh, so you can get a correction in broader EM markets when you have a correction in growth. If you're looking for cyclicality in emerging markets, you have to do that actively. You can't just rely on the benchmark. So for us, EM uh, is, is really about alpha this year. It's really leaning into uh, some cyclical areas of emerging markets, for example, in China, right? It's playing the consumer recovery in China this year uh, through consumer discretionary, as well as uh, Chinese banks playing the improvement in credit growth, especially for small and medium-sized companies. Can emerging markets rally if the dollar doesn't keep weakening? Yeah, so I think the dollar has always been critical for emerging markets, and it's really a function of why the dollar is moving. So there are really two extremes that cause the dollar to strengthen, and neither of those are good for EM. On one side, it's the U.S. doing better than everybody else, or U.S. exceptionalism. We've had some of that here at the beginning of the year. And the other extreme is the U.S. doing too poorly and us having fears um, of some sort of issue in the U.S. and broader global economy. And we've kind of been toggling between these two extremes, causing dollar strength. Ultimately, though, we think this is just a pause on what should be a broader cycle of dollar weakness as we get to the sweet spot uh, where the U.S. is doing well, but so is the rest of the global economy. So, so I think it's a pause in EM uh, before we get a broader rally again. And this goes into your call where you said, we see a positive setup for risk assets over the next 12 to 18 months. The question is, and to me this is the key question, how quickly we move to mid-cycle. What are you looking at? What are the benchmarks that you're looking at to determine the answer to that question? Yeah, it's fascinating. This cycle is so different than the cycle we had last time, just the speed through which we're moving it. In terms of the economy, we look at the unemployment rate as a measure of where we are in the cycle. And we think we'll hit, uh, you know, go back to full employment over two years uh, from peak uh, to full employment. Remember, that took 10 years during the last cycle. So we're moving very fast here through the economic cycle. Now, the cycle doesn't end when we reach full employment, but it does slow down back to potential growth. Mm. In terms of the market, even faster, uh, it took us six months to reach all-time highs again instead of five years, which is what took us last time. So I think we're also approaching a more mature phase of the market cycle uh, right. where returns moderate and they're a lot more related to earnings growth. I'd be remiss, Gabriela, if I didn't ask you about Brazil. We had Lula once, we have Lula again. We've got Brazilian Real and Retreat. It's one of my great, great missed calls of my, my career. I was totally wrong on Lula and the prosperity of Brazil. Can he do it again? 
So I think that's the big question. And investors, if you look at the way the Brazilian real has been weakening or long-term bond yields have been moving, I think investors are answering no to that question. Um, and, and it's all about the kind of team that a potential president Lula could get together. And there's a perception that this time around things are so polarized um, that we would really see a less orthodox team uh, than the first uh, time around. So I really think the balance of risks for Latin America has worsened significantly related to local politics. Gabby, thank you. Great to catch up. Gabriela Santos there of JP Morgan Asset Management. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.